0: you want to get well curious thing about us is that we often have the very behavioral patterns that tend to destroy us being the ones that we are most reticent to change we don't want to make that change we're happy of course we say on an intellectual level yes my pride is ruining my life My anger is destroying my relationships. Gluttony is sabotaging my self-esteem. I don't like the way I look in the mirror. I'm not happy, but I'm not going to give up my food. We can't really seem to change, nor do we really want to, if we admit it to ourselves. Today I want to challenge you to honestly confront the question of whether or not you want freedom from spiritual disabilities. And I want to share with you the hope that I see in this story that Jesus offers each and every one of us. Picture Jesus walking into the temple. He walks by this pool of Bethesda, or Bethsaida, however you choose to pronounce it. And for many years it was thought to be lost, but in approximately 1967 it was discovered. The Pool of beseda covered with a debris of centuries, was excavated. It's located to the north of the Temple Mount, near what is now called St. Stephen's Gate. St. Stephen's Gate was, in fact, built on the site of the Sheep Gate, which is mentioned here in this text. And there were five porches covered with colonnades or porticos. It means they had a roof over the top of them to shade the people that were laying on those porches. And in Jesus' time, it was the habit of people to come during the time of feasts and lay there under the porches waiting for the pool to rise and jump in hoping for a healing miracle. If you have a Bible other than the King James Version you'll notice that verse 4 is not included or it might be a footnote down at the bottom of the text somewhere. many versions include or exclude this verse because it is an explanation it was added to the text later to explain why people were there so people have taken it out of translations verse 4 is the one that says First, into the pool after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he had. The pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida was a typical pool of um, Jerusalem that was subject to fluctuations in water pressure just like many of the other pools in Jerusalem, it would fluctuate with the water pressure in the mountains. Anytime there was a little bit of rain in the mountains that would flow into the aquifers, it would raise the level of the pools all over Jerusalem. So, people being superstitious by nature came up with the reasoning that when this happened, it was because an angel touched the pool and they could come there and be healed. And this is very similar to other parts of the world where we find occurrences of healing. Like, for example, in Lourdes in southern France, there's a spa which many believe has healing capabilities. (laughs) the Shrine of Guadalupe in Mexico City. It has thousands of crutches stacked along the walls from people who had been healed there in this special place that they thought they would receive a blessing from God and be healed. And the facts are that the Pool of Beseda and these other places are more than likely places where people come and they are healed psychologically. They come there believing that they can be healed and they are healed. Most of these healings are explained by psychology. People believe they're going to be healed. They're in a place where healings supposedly occur and they do the expected thing. They are healed. They get up and walk without their crutches. They have all kinds of diseases healed or taken away from their bodies, mainly because they believe. The pool of Bethsaida had established a reputation as a place where people could come and be healed. And this man had been coming there for 38 years. Every time there was a feast in Jerusalem, he would get his friends to bring him down to the pool, and he would lay there. When I was younger, I used to think that this man had laid there for 38 years. But then I went back and actually read the verse a little more carefully, and if you'll read with me, verse 5, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. It doesn't say that he had laid there for 38 years. It says that he had been an invalid for 38 years. So we don't know why. We don't know why he was an invalid. But we do know that he is not a lame man. He's not a cripple according to James Watt's vocabulary and translation of Greek he is not a lame person he is weak, he is feeble he is unable to stand but he is not paralyzed he just can't get up on his own How many people do you know who suffer from a disease that might be similar? Maybe it's tuberculosis, or Crutchfield's Jacobs disease, or multiple sclerosis. There are many diseases that it might have been. Whatever disease it was, it made him unable to walk for 38 years. And there was a crowd of people around him. He wasn't the only one laying there. So why did Jesus pick this guy out of the crowd? Have you ever thought about it? Why didn't Jesus just say, Hey, all you people, be healed. Get up, go home. Let's clear this place out. Why did he pick one man out of the crowd that day? I think part of the value of a story like this and the reason it's in the Gospels is not only to reveal to us who Jesus was but to show us how God proposes to deal with our helplessness and weakness undoubtedly this man was in a helpless condition and Jesus saw that and that may be what drew him in to this one person Not only that, God wants to interact with us one-on-one. He doesn't want us to be part of the crowd. He wants to know us individually. We could all see ourselves laying there at the pool, in a sense, helpless, weak, crippled, and lame. This morning, we all need help. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all find ourselves paralyzed, unable to make the right choice at times, unable to do the thing that we ought to do or want to do. We are lame, we are invalids, unable to walk. This story is included in the Gospels to show us and help us understand how God proposes to help us through the ministry of Christ. What a strange question to ask of a man laying there for 38 years. Do you want to get well? But Jesus never asked a foolish question in his life. Obviously, it was important for this man to answer the question. At least to himself. The question to himself would have been, do I want to get well? Do I want to be healed? Why wouldn't he want to be healed? As I said before, it's often easy for us to live in the bondage that we find ourselves in. We don't want to be released from our infirmities. We don't want divine help for our problems. We don't really want to get well. Because getting well would mean that we'd have to actually think about the consequences of our actions. We don't want to get out of our weakness. Our helplessness. Because in our helpless condition... We get the, the attention from other people that we so crave. We assume that fleeing responsibility for our own lives is acceptable. I've even seen people who walk away from a way of deliverance, that they knew would work because they didn't want to be healed. Consider the story that a church worker in Seattle shared at church one morning. I'll call him Kurt. Kurt started off the story by saying, last week I was driving north on Pike Street in Seattle when I passed a homeless man sleeping in an alley. He didn't have a blanket He didn't have a coat, and it was below freezing, and even though it was still twilight, I couldn't shake the image from my mind. Kurt paused to collect his emotion, and then he continued. I worried he might freeze to death, so I did a U-turn and went back to the alley. I got out of my car, and then I introduced myself, and I learned that his name was Ray. I told him to come home and live with me until he could get back on his feet again, or at least until the weather got warmer. Kurt went on to tell how Ray enjoyed a hot shower, a big meal, a warm bed, and a key to the house with an invitation to stay as long as he wanted. The irony of the story is that Ray stayed for only two days, and then he disappeared. He left a note scribbled on a crumpled paper sack on the kitchen table. The note read, Thanks, but I prefer to live on the streets. How could this be? Ray scored the jackpot. All of his needs were cared for. He had a warm house. He could take a shower anytime he wanted to. He had plenty of food what Kurt didn't tell you was that there was no alcohol in his house he didn't permit anyone to bring alcohol into his house and Ray could not live without his alcohol alcohol to numb his thoughts he could not face being sober so he said thanks but I prefer to live on the streets Ray preferred to live the life of a homeless drunk because it allowed him to drown his thoughts with alcohol. And before you criticize Ray, think about choices you make, choices we make, and how many people we know that prefer to live in squalor versus having freedom. In some areas of life, we'd rather be homeless than to accept the provision that Jesus makes available to us. Some perhaps may not have reached the place this man by the pool had reached. We are not helpless enough yet. We are not ready to give up human efforts to solve our problems. We're not ready to admit that we cannot make it on our own we're still determined to get into the water when it is troubled. And for those that are in that condition, Jesus can do nothing for us. Jesus taught us how to live the optimum life, that is, the life of the kingdom, on earth as it is in heaven. And yet, how many of us disregard his teaching? Given our human propensity for sin over freedom, Jesus asked the man by the pool, do you want to get well? After all, not everyone truly wants to get healed. If there are some of you who can identify with this man, and the Lord is saying to you as we go through this account, do you want to be healed You have to answer that question. And if you say in your mind, no, not yet, or no, I don't, then I have nothing more that I can share with you today. You might as well turn off your mind and go to sleep in the pew, or get up and walk out now. Because if you're not willing to say, yes, I want to be healed, There's nothing here for you. Jesus will not force you to be healed. Unless you're willing to say, I am helpless. I can't do it myself. There's nothing here for you. The man in verse 7 answers Jesus' question. He says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. In other words, yes, I want to be healed, but I cannot do it myself. I've tried. I've done everything I know how. I want to get into that water. I want to be healed, but I can't do it by myself. I lack the ability to do it on my own. And I don't have anybody to help me. So I've given up hope. I'm laying here because I want to get well, but I don't have any hope to do it on my own. Many of us here this morning are like that. We've given up on our situation, refusing to believe that there is any hope that it can change. We see no way from a human viewpoint, so we've resigned ourselves to being weak, faltering Christians for the rest of our lives. We'll stumble along sort of being Christians, limping along with our crutches, not wanting to get well. I know there are some of us like that among us this morning. I don't know what your problem is. Maybe you've tried to stop drinking. Maybe alcohol is ruining your life. Maybe anger is ruining your family and your home. You thought you could control it. You thought that by following the ways of the world and the teachings of the world, you could control it. But it still keeps coming back and tripping you up time after time after time. It's amazing to me how many people casually feel like they're in control of something that really has control of them. You've heard a person say, it's easy to stop smoking. I've done it hundreds of times. Think about that answer, though. It's very revealing. It says how much they are controlled by smoking, the addiction. What about debt? Are you living in a perceived need to keep up with the Joneses? Spending out of control? Perhaps there's something wrong with your marriage. You've tried to correct things on your own. You may have even asked for help, but nobody seems to care, and it only gets worse. Whatever it is, wherever you find yourself, if you find yourself where this man was, helpless and hopeless, making any change on your own, I have some good news for you. Let's look at what Jesus said to the man. In verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. You don't need to go in that pool. He didn't say anything like, Here. I'll sit here and wait with you until the pool moves and I'll put you in the pool next time. He didn't say, I'll send somebody to help you. He didn't say, hang on, keep coming here. Perhaps someday you'll make it in time. Someday it'll all work out. Someday you'll be right by the edge of the pool and somebody will push you in. No, he didn't say those things. He also didn't say, Well, let's make you comfortable. Let's get you a new mattress to lie on, put some flowers here for you to admire, and arrange to bring you two meals a day. Did he? So, why don't we believe? Why don't we believe like this man that we can be changed, that we can get up and walk? Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Why don't we believe? There's a couple of things to notice here before we move on. First, He asks him to do something that is impossible. Second, he removes all possibility of relapse. And third, he expects continued success. All these three things are involved when Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. You're going to do something impossible. You haven't done this for 38 years. Your muscles don't work. They have had no training. There's no possible way that you can do this on your own, but you're going to do it. Somehow, this man senses this is true. This is possible. I don't know how, I don't know what he felt. But I'm sure that he knew it wasn't going to be on his own efforts. It was his faith in Jesus that allowed him to do it. He said, I I know that he said I can do it. I'm gonna trust him and I'm gonna do it. This man is gonna help me. I've got to decide to do what he tells me to do. And this is a critical clue that many of us miss when we're looking for help from God. There's always something that God tells us to do. To act on. To believe. This is a word of action. Jesus doesn't say, try to build up your faith in your mind. He doesn't say, fasten your thoughts on this or that and will yourself up. He says, get up. Rise. Take up your bed and walk. Obviously, it was Jesus' will that this man should do what he told him to do. And the moment that the man's will agreed with Jesus' will, the power was there. I don't know whether he felt anything or not. All I know is that strength came into his bones and into his muscles, and he could stand. He knew he could, and he did. Then what? He followed it up with, Take up your mat. Why did he say that? I like the way that G. Campbell Morgan put it in his sermon on the same topic. He said in order to make no provision for a relapse the man might have said to himself I'm healed today, but I'd better leave my bed here I may need it tomorrow. If he had said that, he would have come back and been right back in it the next day. But he did not. Jesus said, take up your mat, get rid of it don't leave it there. In those words, he's saying something very important to people who need to be healed. Do not make any provision to go back to what you have done. Do not make any provision to go back to doing what you were doing. And many people fail right there. If it's alcohol, go home. Pour it out. If it's cigarettes, throw them out. If it's pornography... Stop going to the store to buy where you buy them. If it's on your computer, block all those websites. If it's friends who have been luring you back into evil, change your friends. Cut off any possibility of going back. Let somebody know where you stand. What you have decided to do. Ask them to hold you to it. Burn your bridges, though. This is what Jesus is saying by, take up your mat. Burn your bridge. You're not going to come back here. You don't need your bed anymore. You're done. Take up your bed and walk. That third thing, walk don't be expected to be carried walk why is it so many people after they're healed want to be carried wheeled around in a wheelchair they expect someone to gather around them and keep them going a common area of failure but who gives us power Jesus gives us power. He's the one that gave you the power to walk the first time. He'll give you the power to walk every day. It's important that you see this. Your eyes are not on your friends. Your eyes are not on you. Where are they? They are on Jesus. Paul tells us in Hebrews 12, verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, This is how the man kept going, looking unto Jesus. There are many other things that we could cover with the text here in John. We could talk about the Pharisees and the problems that they had with legalism. This man, for instance, was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. He broke all kinds of Sabbath regulations. And the first thing they asked him was not, Who healed you? Or, Wow, you've been healed, but hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. So we could talk about that. But that's more than enough for one sermon. So I'm going to skip over that, if you'll allow me. The luxury of getting to the point on what we need to focus on today. And that is that Jesus had one more thing to say to this man. If you'll skip down with me to verse 13 and 14. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Jesus disappeared. This man knew that he was going to be healed. He picked up his mat, and he walked. And Jesus disappeared into the crowd. Immediately, the man got in trouble with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. But right after that, he went to the temple. Why did he go to the temple? Why did Jesus know that he would find him at the temple? This man was a Jew, and he lived faithfully according to Levitical law, which said that when you are healed you need to go to the temple and offer something. You need to offer a thank offering. You need to thank God for healing. Do we ever do that? When we are healed, do we thank God by giving an offering for healing? Jesus knew that this man would be in the temple, and so he found him there. And when he found him, he said, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Notice the order of what Jesus said to him. It's important. He didn't say, Sin no more. If you do, you will lose your healing. No, he said, see, you are made whole. Now, stop sinning. He calls the man's attention to the fact that he had been not only physically healed, but he was spiritually healed. He was cleansed. A new man. And to the person who has received wholeness from God without any merit or earning on his part, to that person, Jesus says, Sin no more. I expect you to not do it again. These words are revealing. They reveal something more about this man. What might have sapped his strength and made him lay there helpless and hopeless on the ground for 38 years. It's likely that some sin was sapping strength out of his life. It's not always that sin makes people sick. There are accounts of other people in the Word of God, however, that indicate it's the corporate sin of a whole race that might make an individual sick. We must remember that from the book of Job, we're not always to blame the individual for his illness. But sometimes, and I think there is a strong possibility in this case from what Jesus says that this person had been doing some sin. I think we as individuals will know if our sin is causing an illness in our life. If we know that we are sinning. We don't know what kind of sin this man had been committing. Perhaps it was a bitter spirit towards someone else. Perhaps it was A sin that he kept committing over and over. Whatever it was, there are numbers of sins that could sap all the energy and vitality out of life and turn a person into an invalid. God reminds us that he is concerned about areas of our life like that. Paul puts it in a wonderful verse that most of us should know by heart. And if you don't, you should remember it from this day forward. Galatians 6, verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For he who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. Injury, hurt, damage, heartache, sorrow Will all come because God reads hearts He knows what you sow But he that sows to the spirit shall reap life Translate that word life, vitality, peace, love, joy Those good things that keep us whole Any way you translate it You make a choice To either damage your life Or receive healing Here, Jesus raises a lamp of warning. In the middle of the railroad tracks, he stands there and says, sin no more, that nothing worse befalls you. He then goes on to explain why he broke the Sabbath tradition and healed the man. He said, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. In John five seventeen, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, You go back to Moses and to all that the rabbis have added to his laws, to your 39 interpretations of ways in which to break the Sabbath by carrying something. But I go back further than that. I go back all the way to God at the very beginning, And God is at work. God is doing this. The merciful and compassionate God has found this man. He is working, and I, Jesus Christ, am his instrument. That is why I am doing this. This is one of the most profound statements in the Gospel of John. The secret of meaning in any life is finding out what God is doing and working with Him becoming an instrument of the moving God throughout history. What Jesus has said is true for us today. God is working in the 21st century. He is working in international events. He is working in the pressures and problems that come to each of us. He is working in the very circumstance in which you find yourself today. What you need to know what you need to find out is where is God moving in your life? Where will you be his instrument? The only thing that lasts, the only thing that gives significance to life is that which is done by God. Only God's work will last. Nothing that we as men do will last. It will all fall away to nothingness. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of what happens when we as men take it upon ourselves, believing that we can do it. Babylon today is where? Destroyed, burned, covered over by many, many centuries of dust. But what God does, that will last. Lest you think that Ray's story or the story of the ailing man is any different than yours or mine, I remind you that we are all sinners. It is only by God's miracle of mercy that we can find forgiveness and freedom from our sins. All we have to do is acknowledge his grace accept his gift, and arise to walk with God. I'm going to close with this question that Jesus asks each one of us today. In some area of your life, do you want to be free? If you say yes, he will say, stand up, take up your bed, and walk. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, this morning, we have sensed that there is something here. Like a great multitude lying by the pool of Bethsaida, waiting to be healed, trying various ways and means, hoping that somebody will help, we have not yet listened to the wonderful voice that says to us in our inner heart, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. We ask that you would come today and grant that we would have the faith to do so. We pray in Jesus' name.